server-side rendering was, as far as I know, the f- first way you do web back in the day using frameworks like Ruby on Rails, ASP.NET from Microsoft, or even Django, Python, Python framework. This is 20-Minute JavaScript, a weekly show where I, your host, interview members of the JavaScript community about all topics concerning JavaScript. The 20-Minute JavaScript show is brought to you by Open Replay, an open-source session replay platform meant for developers. If you'd like to know more, visit openreplay.com. If you'd like to be on the show or suggest a topic, find us on Twitter at The20MinuteJS. Welcome to episode 36, I'm Fernando, and today we're going to be talking about data loading strategies and how they can improve your app and your user's experience. This is part one of a two-part episode because we're going to be covering quite a few, so make sure you have your note taken up at the ready. And to discuss this topic, we have with us Theo. He recently published a very detailed article about the topic and has agreed to come in and share his experience with us. So, without further ado, welcome to the show, Theo. Please go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience. Hello, everyone. My name is Theo. Uh, my full name is Augustinus Theodorus. Uh, that's in Indonesian because I'm from Indonesia. I work in a stealth startup right now. I can't tell publicly, publicly where I'm working at. But uh, what I can tell you about is I'm working in the blockchain industry. More specifically, I'm working on the Solana blockchain. That That's actually very intriguing. Now I want to know where you're working. Um, that interesting. I never heard about stealth uh, startups before. That's a new one for me. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're here to talk about data loading. You wrote a very detailed and, and, and interesting article uh, about it. You mentioned several techniques that can help in different ways to solve that problem or whatever. I mean, whatever problem that may arise arise by dealing with data loading. So uh, I want to first introduce our listeners so that we're all on the same page when we're talking about this. Can you define what you understand by data loading and mainly why is it such an important topic when, we com- when it comes to designing and developing web applications? So... Data loading is a concept when a browser loads the application's front end. And the important, th- the important thing about data loading is how fast and responsive uh, the application will load in the first few seconds. A good example is when you try to load your landing page, and it has this huge image. Obviously, you need to resize that, rescale that, and optimize it to make the site load even faster because research shows, in well, I think this was made by Google, the users will usually leave the site after 3.0, two to three seconds of waiting and it not loading, like just a white screen. So the reason why data loading is very important and why I touched on it in that article 
is because um, my previous experiences, um, because I work in the Web3 industry, uh, blockchain, we have a lot of uh, libraries that we have to load, libraries to connect to the database, uh, libraries to connect to the APIs, to the SDKs uh, that will connect to the blockchain itself because all blockchain connections are usually from the front end. Um, there lies a problem where the libraries are so big sometimes that it'll hamper the user experience quite significantly. So, yeah, that's what I mean by data loading. Amazing. And I think that the interesting bit here is that when we say data, lo data loading, I personally think of like, you know, making an API request and, and getting data uh, usually in JSON format from somewhere else. But you, you mentioned images. I mean, this is all, this encompasses then um, everything, essentially. Whatever you're loading on, on your web page that is not the main HTML, or even then the main HTML, um, you have to find a way to load it fast. And if you have a complex website, you usually have multiple multiple elements, multiple components that will load at different speeds. And the way you optimize for that is going to either dictate the success or failure of your application, or can at least. So I like, uh, I definitely think this is a crucial topic in any web developer who wants to work on, on a serious project. So can we like go into more detail about what kind of problems can we run into? Because obviously we can all think about performance and, and you know, making our site load um, uh, or, or making our site take longer to load because we're just loading a huge image, image or maybe doing a request to an API that is responding too slow. But what kind of other implications are there other than performance? Uh. I don't really have a huge list on top of my head of what things can go wrong, uh, exactly. But I do have a few things that I have in mind that can be a problem. And this might sound repetitive, but first of all, I'll just repeat the things that I have in mind on top of my head is, well, first of all, you have to have, a, if you're loading any assets, you have to optimize it. And it it's not limited to images. It's <clears throat> it can also mean like minified uh, CSS, uh, minified JavaScript, and uh, you really have to be mindful of what kind of libraries you're using in the front end because most of the time, uh, modern day uh, front end developers they uh, have a lot of abstractions. Of like, for example, React and frameworks like Vue.js that can help with front-end development. But so because there's a lot of abstractions, it can slow down the performance quite a bit because we end up loading stuff that we don't really need. It happens most of the time when we don't consider which projects that we should, which projects we should add and not add into our stack. So that's another problem of data loading. And the other thing that Fernando that you touched on was APIs. So of course, uh, slow APIs is a problem, but I didn't really 
touch on it that much because I thought uh, touching backend and APIs uh, will essentially make the conversation go even further to the backend, like optimizing the backend performance and everything, which is not what the article was actually meant to be about. What It's not even what I wanted to touch on uh, regardless. But yeah, that those are the problems that I see. And when we're talking about front-end performance, of course, it could lead to a lot of things because if the front end is too big, for example, it'll be slower for for it to load. And when the front end uh, has a lot of files that it needs to load, it'll hamper the user experience, especially if the user uses a low-end device and uses something that... mm, and they're on a network that uh, that's not really good per se. Like for example, um, most countries now use four G, but there are some countries that uses three G connections, which is uh, not really that fast compared and compared to developed nations. Maybe five G is really better, but essentially, not everyone has the same access to a uh, good internet. Yeah. Right. So you touch actually uh, on a very interesting point that I hadn't considered before is uh, that is the network. I mean, if you're taking too long on loading your data because you're either loading too much or doing it inefficiently, you're clearly, like you said, affecting the user experience of users who are using low-end devices on slow networks, but you're also like affecting their bill. I mean, their data consumption at least. Uh, so that's also that. Like, I feel like that falls outside of user experience into like a whole different realm of <laughs> of problems that you can cause to uh, your users. So this is definitely uh, a very relevant topic. Uh, let's put it that way. So moving on, you on, on your article you mentioned actually several different ways, several different techniques to handle data loading. Uh, obviously, they all they're not all ideal for the same use cases. Uh, So I want to go through them uh, and get your opinion on, you know, what they mean and where or how they solve the data loading issues. So let's start with the most common one nowadays, uh, the one that everyone is talking about. Every framework says they're doing it. So server-side rendering, what is it exactly and how is it going to help us uh, improve our data loading? Uh, server-side rendering, for me personally, is actually kind of interesting because when I started being a software engineer, the most popular thing, uh, not most popular, the thing that was going around was client-side rendering via React or Vue, something like that. And now the whole space has come full circle and has went back to, has and has gone back to uh, server side rendering and everything it's actually server side rendering was as far as i know the f- first way you do web back in the day using frameworks like ruby on rails asp.net from microsoft or even django 
Python Python framework. They so you essentially have to request a server to give you HTML like pre uh, preloaded with all the data and everything. So that's what server side rendering really is. And what's the difference with uh, the more recently used like client side rendering is client side rendering uses hydration to load your javascript in the front end and to build your uh, ui essentially and client side rendering because everything is done on the client side you still need to get the data from a backend api like you call a backend api and then you load it it's different uh, with uh, server-side rendering applications because, well, of, sometimes you do need to call a backend API, but most of the time the data is already served in the HTML that's going to be returned to the front end itself. Server-side rendering af- application still has stuff like uh, hydration sometimes, but most of the time because it returns pure HTML that's already loaded with CSS and everything. The bare bones skeletal structure of your page is already there. And it doesn't really have to do much work compared to client-side apps. So that's the difference between server-side and client-side. Hence the name, because client-side uses a lot of the computing power from the user's computer. While server-side, well, we already made the HTML for the users and we're just giving it to them. Exactly, yeah. So definitely, um, so the service, the, the client-side rendering, the, the advantage, if you will, uh, would be that you're giving the client like a skeletal version of your web much faster. Um, but they then it has to uh, the whole rendering, data loading, and so on has to happen on the client, and that is where we start running into the performance issues and you know potential problems that may cause like we, we talked before. We're trying to avoid that and server side rendering, like you said, uh, everything happens on the backend, and that is great. That is a good solution, but I guess it's not perfect because sometimes. If you're, if you're loading a lot of data, then the downside to that is that your user is waiting extra time for the whole rendering to happen on the backend and, you know, the whole page with all the data to be transferred to the client. So that's where we keep going into the other, maybe more advanced techniques. What's the difference with Jamstack? I, I wonder, because you had them like separate things, but I've always seen like Jamstack to be very similar to server-side rendering. So what what's the difference there and, and how can we use Jamstack to like, improve the way we load data? Okay, so Jamstack is also another interesting buzzword. It's an acronym for JavaScript APIs Markdown Stack, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Correct me if I'm wrong, please, but... Anyway, yeah, so that's what Jamstack is. So what does Jamstack do? So uh, it is very similar to server-side rendering in a way because most Jamstack applications, they receive a format 
sometimes in Markdown, sometimes in something else. And they literally compile the HTML that's going to be served to the users before they upload it to a server. So Jamstack is essentially something static that we serve to a user, a static HTML. And why do, why do we call it uh, Jamstack if it's like a static uh, site? But why do we call it Jamstack anyways? Because in the end, after you compile the HTML, if there are further further requests that you need to make, you end up using a back, you end up opening an API in the backend and you need to manipulate how you show that data with client-side JavaScript rendering anyway. So that's why it's kind of static, but sometimes it's not fully static. Maybe that's not the right way to word it. It might sound confusing to some of the listeners, but essentially that's what Jamstack is. In case of server-side rendering, when you open a URL, does the request go on to a server and then the server loads the HTML and loads data and then returns the HTML to the users? But a Jamstack application will most likely have the HTML already rendered uh, before they deployed it. And you're just retrieving the HTML, sometimes directly from the server, sometimes probably from a CDN. Uh, so that's the difference that I usually have in mind. So it's easier for me to differentiate between the two technologies and when to use them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, the classic um, example of Shamstack uh, application would be uh, a blog essentially yeah where you have all the articles instead of having the articles like loaded uh, inside a cms and then you know loading that data and creating the whole html and then returning that you just have them all pre-compile uh, all the html waiting there to be to be delivered and you can spice it up adding some javascript to perform like searches uh using like a third-party um service like Algolia, uh you know uh, that's also part of, like you said, kind of dynamic, kind of static. But yeah, uh, if, if you want to see, like, if you want to think of a practical example, a blog, a blog uh, site will be like the ideal case, All right? And and definitely that this thing, essentially using Jamstack, uh, is fantastic to increase and, and improve the performance of certain applications, like a blog or things that have most of its content being static. You know, you don't need a huge application to display articles. If they're not going to change constantly, then this is definitely a great optimization technique to improve the data loading inside your application, inside your blog. Um, but, you know, it doesn't work well with other kind of applications like, you know, other more dynamic types. So... Let's move on to the next one, to caching. You mentioned caching as one of the uh, optional optimizations here. Are we talking about browser caching or what kind of caching exactly? There are uh, there were two things that I had in mind when I was thinking about caching. So a few years ago when I was 
still working in a corporate job before I moved into the blockchain and Web3 industry. I was part of a team that managed the backend part of the of an application. And we had, uh, I don't think I can say how many users we had, but we had like in the, we had a lot, let's just say. And okay. to implement, to, to make these backend run faster, we needed to figure out something that will uh, make the data lookup be significantly faster so we ended up using something called redis so this is actually kind kind of uh, in the backend side of things we use redis to cache all the responses from the backend api so uh, we don't need to get the responses again from a database we can just get it from a redis cache a redis a redis cache layer which is significantly faster than if we look it up on the database. And this technique that I just mentioned is called like server-side caching. It involves you uh, having to call an API first for the thing to be used. So this is not something that's on the client itself. It's actually on the services that you host to make the services more fast and responsive. And um, the second thing that came to mind was browser caching. So browser caching is kind of different. I have to admit there isn't as much use cases for it in the extension of my career. I haven't used browser caching that much. So this involves saving states to the local storage or the state, state management, depending on how important the data is. So, for example, um, a few, a few, a few months ago, there was this problem of the users needing to, when they reload an application, right? When they reload an application, and the application was a view-based application, they end up having to call a backend API every time. So it kind of kind of uh, slows down the performance a bit. It's not too much, just a bit. But um, the product people want to make it a little bit more seamless. So the way that we gone uh, went through all that was to call an API and then... Uh, we first have to make sure that the data is not too dynamic in the sense that it's the data won't change that much so we can safely cache it in the user's local storage and we can uh, just load it again every time they uh, reload the browser, something like that. And another uh, simpler way to uh, browser caching, quote-unquote, is using state management. So I wouldn't say that state management is uh, caching. It's kind of a wrong way to word it. But saving stuff in a state can, well, it's essentially what JavaScript and all the frameworks are kind of doing right now. But uh, 
the thing that I want people to touch on is uh, the kind of data that you put in state. Like you don't need to put like everything that's on the database on your state. Obviously, you have to be more mindful of how you use it because sometimes it can either hurt or break your application if you don't have good states management. So that's fair. Uh, just a note about that before doing it, just double check the library you're using. Uh, if it's actually saving the data somewhere else other than in memory, because we just had an episode with the creator opinion, the follower essentially to UX. And he said that by default, Pinya is uh, just storing data on memory. So if you just refresh the page, you lose all the data. So you cannot, you cannot lose the whole cache, but you have to like implement some uh, local storage uh, uh, logic there to make sure that the cache lasts for a bit longer than a refresh. But definitely, yeah, definitely something you can do. And like you said, you should do it carefully uh, with what you save there and how much data you put in there, but it's an option, absolutely. And just another about Redis, I mean, I just want to say it's my favorite NoSQL database. And the reason why it's so damn fast and it's the reason why it's used as a cache in a lot of places is because it's an in-memory database. So it doesn't save by default or as a first storage strategy, it doesn't save data to disk it will do it eventually but all the queries that you do all the writes and reads they come from memory so that's why it's so fast because it's uh, reading memory it's a lot faster than reading or io essentially into disk those are absolutely great techniques techniques that will give you an an improved performance and you know if the use case merits essentially if if your data like you said is not constantly changing like and you can live with maybe in some situations sending data that is outdated, maybe for a few minutes or for a few seconds to the users and then updating that once the cache updates, then yeah, it's it's a, a very common and a very good technique. It requires a lot more work though. The, it's not something that you can just install like, you know, a Shamsack framework and then it will work. But yeah, it's it's very good. All right. And that's it for this episode. Tune in next week and find out what else is Theo going to share with us about data loading strategies. I'll leave you with a preview though, so you know what to expect. See you next week. When you want to show real-time data, the problem is sometimes we can't pull a backend, right? We can't always pull the backend. So the WebSocket API can just push the message, like push the notification into the client's browser or client's mobile app, anything like that. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't yet, take 10 seconds and leave a review of the show on your podcasting app. It will help us grow and reach more developers. And while you're at it, follow us on Twitter at The20MinuteJS. This episode was brought to you by Open Replay an open source session replay platform for developers. Visit openreplay.com to know more, and I'll see you back here next week.